manufactures you. I know. F you. Hello and welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined as always by Kate Rennebaum. Hello, everybody. And uh, we're very pleased to tell you that uh, this week we are joined by film programmer and freelance writer. She's got bylines at W Magazine, The Hollywood Reporter, The New York Times, and some other places. It's Miriam Bale. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm so pleased to be here for this episode. Yay! Yeah, you really, as we have already discussed off mic, you insanely lucked out this <laughs> week, so congratulations. Not that there's been, you know, bad episodes, but I think we can acknowledge there have been more eventful episodes, and this was perhaps the most eventful. But can I be honest? In a way, it was my most disappointing because of that. I've, I've come to like it, but there, I was really... I was getting invested in the dream logic and this is the episode where everyone wakes up and it all of a sudden things try it to fit into a more waking normal narrative. And so I feel a little bit of a, of a ingrate for <laughs> being disappointed in this episode, <laughs> which was such beautiful fan service and um, I should be grateful, but um you actually make me feel, you make me feel a bit better, Miriam. So I, I think I had some of these similar reactions too. Um, and, and as you say, I have also very much come to, to love it. And I think my mind has been changed a little bit about what I read at first as it being very much this episode where everybody wakes up. I think I've changed my thinking about some of it, but I'm super, I'm so glad that you said that because I feel like I was the one that, <laughs> I felt bad about being the one that was, maybe had some reservations about the, some of this stuff. So this is interesting. I'm sure we're going to have a good conversation. Yeah. I wonder how much of that is. We're, 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 I'd like to sort of pull back a moment um, because I, I do wonder how much of that is just our, our our remorse about the fact that this is ending and this episode very much signals that things are ending. But um, as I said, to, to pull back a little bit, I wanted to sort of uh, to ask you, Miriam, sort of the, the the closest thing we have to a stock question, which is uh, what's your what's your uh, your traditional feeling about Lynch and, and how did you get indoctrinated into uh, Twin Peaks hood? Okay. So, um, so it's funny. I was thinking about it. I knew you'd ask me this and I realized Twin Peaks was really my first sort of adult, adult art. Um, I was, I watched it in real time. I was a kid like in middle school, like 12, 13. And I had, um, and it was, I'd never seen anything like it. I was obsessed with it. As anyone who knows me on Twitter, I am so obsessed with uh, season three. And I was <laughs> equally obsessed with season one and two when I was a kid. And I wanted to recreate it with my friends on like video camera. And they were all just like, what are you doing? I, it was a really, it was a strange mania when I was like a kid. But it was also... um a, it was like, you know, I had just come from babysitting and watching a soap opera all summer and reading mystery novels. And then all of a sudden I was, I was introduced to this, which made me think about narrative and think about all sorts of things. And it brought me into, I don't think I would have been a cinephile if it hadn't been for this. So then I discovered, then I sought out, um, 
uh, Blue Velvet and I saw Wild at Heart. And it really is what got me into indie film. And so this is, I think it had a huge influence on my life for for better or worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Where would you be if not for Twin Peaks? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's, I I wanted to add to at the beginning here, just to say that it's been really interesting um, as I'm sure we've all remarked on like the phenomenon of Twin Peaks Twitter. And I was following Miriam, I think a while ago before uh, this all started, somebody else recommended um, you Miriam on Twitter as a film critic. And so I was following you for that. And then as soon as Twin Peaks picked up, I was like, this person is awesome. (laughs) We have to get her on the podcast because I have very much enjoyed finding people who want to talk about Twin Peaks as much as I want to talk about Twin Peaks. Um, I'm for people who I think who follow me on Twitter maybe already know this, but I'm, uh, currently in Telluride, Colorado, where I'm working for the film festival, um, my brain feels very split in half between film festival prep and trying to focus on Twin Peaks and all of this stuff. But uh, other staff in my office have started to make a joke that there's like a rule that I'm only allowed to mention Twin Peaks once an hour. <laughs> if I if I go beyond <laughs> that, then I have to take a break for the future hours. <laughs> I'm like, this is a film festival, you guys. If I can't talk about Twin Peaks here, where can I talk about Twin Peaks? Oh my gosh, there's nothing else. There's nothing else, Kay. I just feel like I'm unapologetic. As I've said on Twitter, I feel like I'm losing regular followers and gaining all these these <laughs> far corners of Twin Peaks like maniacs. And I completely love it. I, I was at Cannes this year and it was really interesting. They showed the first two episodes of Twin Peaks and I saw it towards the end. I was going to skip it because, you know, I could just see it on TV when I got back. But then I decided to go and seeing it in the theater was also just an amazing experience. It was edited as one two hour movie, as I imagine the the finale will be. Um, and the sound and just it was by far the most challenging thing that I saw I can. There was a lot of disappointments, a lot of sort of people doing the same thing. And it was I didn't really know quite how to process that the best or the most challenging thing I saw was a TV thing. And then throughout the summer, that's been even more the case. Like it's really sort of changed my mind about narrative format and um, narrative expectations. The whole way it's paced is like an 18 hour movie. And like the first three episodes are intro and then it's sort of inciting incident and then sort of one peak and then another peak, but over an 18 hour format. And, you know, we're, we're so used to things like, you know, you go to an Alamo theater or something like that and they drop the check just before it ends. You have all this internal clock exactly when things will yeah. start and end. And this is just completely rewired my brain and I love it. It's funny to think about, the return as like a, a, a three act film that just happens to be incredibly long. Um, because if that's the case, part 16 clearly places us. And I think probably started last week. It clearly places us at the climax. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess we should probably now start specifically talking about part 16, um, AKA the one where Cooper wakes up, which is I'm sure all that, you know, most normal Twin Peaks fans are going to be talking about. But uh, there's, of course, so many other things to talk about um, in the span of this episode. And I guess there's an appropriate place to start would be near the beginning with, of course, uh, the first of many characters to bite the dust in this episode, 
um, the end of Richard Horn. Amazing scene. But wait, actually, Simon, let me just say what you said as far as that now we're at the um, we're we're at the end. It's we're really at the climax, and and I think maybe the next two will just be sort of the resolution. So it makes sense mm-hmm. that this was the episode that you know, things finally happened, you know, (laughs) things really happened and the pace was really exciting. But yes, the Richard Horn scene was so incredible. We got this amazing father-son road trip, right? Yeah. So biblical, (laughs) (laughs) so biblical. There was something, I don't know, this is, I don't know if this is to Lynch's credit or to the actor Eamon Farron's credit. I don't know who's to to give total credit for this too, but I cannot, I couldn't help but be mildly like affected by, um, I don't know, Richard Horn's like bizarre sort of blind faith in Evil Coop. Like this idea that he just does what this guy asks. And the fact that it's that it's never even made clear whether Eamon Farron, whether um, Richard Horn understands or suspects that Evil Coop is his father. I mean, that's never even made clear. And the idea that he just sort of follows him around and does what he's told blindly, I don't know, I found it um, an appropriate kind of like background to the end of the scene, which is, of course, that Evil Coop is sort of sacrificing him for something that we are still confused about. We're not even sure what the sacrifice was was for. Um, and it's, yes, truly one of the more brutal lines to come out of Evil Coop's mouth when he says, uh, goodbye, my son, after this sort of mild look of, like, dismay after his son explodes in a, I, sh- <laughs> I, I, sh- I should add, a, a beautiful set of effects, right? Is that what you're going to say, Miriam? Miriam? No, I was going to say the line reading of, like, oh. that, of that, no, when he first, that, ugh. Oh, I, I can't even, I don't know the line when he first evaporates or zapped and his, and um, Kyle McLaughlin just sort of responds, uh, like a sort of disappointment, <laughs> but mild disappointment. And I just think it was the most brilliant line reading until a, a, a couple of minutes later when we get to another scene. But this, yeah. he was so good in this. And then he even has that part. He has the part where he says, yeah, as a, as a bad guy, as Richard Horn as a young bad guy here he meets a father figure who's actually his father another a much worse bad guy and and Cooper says you're you're a bright young man and, you know he really takes on the father role and it was so moving to see both of them in that wasn't it Yes, and then uh, and then to see how it plays out, um, especially especially when you think back to the earlier sequence with um, Richard Horn and Red in the wherever that's supposed to be, like in a garage somewhere, um, where Richard Horn is clearly trying to engage Red as something of a father figure, right? Like as an authority figure that that Richard Horn wants the approval of, and and Red just messes with him, and this is what leads Richard into this insane sort of narcissistic rage where he kills the little boy in the traffic. Um, uh, crosswalk. And uh, so then if you think about that in relation to this, there again, it is quite affecting the way that like, yeah, Evil Coop sort of gives him this approval as a father figure before sending him to his death, um, which is, yes, a little much. And and the, um, the only other thing I really wanted to add about that, um, and then I want to hear what Simon says about it, is I just, I loved... Lynch's use of the effects when Richard Horn um, explodes. Because, like, if you imagine somebody seeing on paper, you know, oh, Richard Horn dies in an explosion, you could imagine any number of ways in which that might be a very boring set of effects. And Lynch manages to get such, like, 
tactility out of the way that the light is sort of coming out of him with the sound. It sounds like he has, he's like become a firecracker or something. I, I don't know. I found it stunning. It was like a beautiful scene. That plus the binoculars, the sort of elliptical view that we're getting on it from far away, which almost looks like a silent film with the iris. I, I thought all of that was stunning. Um, Jerry, Jerry Horn. <laughs> Jerry Horn. <laughs> that was such a smart way to give it um, a sense of place too. So we know yes. that it's, they're back, they're near Twin Peaks. We think that's very true. My favorite thing about that sequence is the ambiguity of, you know, it seems like Evil Coop, you know, he he sets Richard up to maybe be killed. It doesn't seem like he has any malicious intent though to me. Yeah, like no. it seems like yeah, like he knows that it might happen. Yeah. He maybe he's hoping kinda that it doesn't, but he knows he won't be too bothered either way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is maybe like the most the most sinister, you know, possible way to handle that situation. <laughs> um it's just yeah, it's so so strange. Um, and I love the way he, he asks him to, like, you know, if you, you have three coordinates, two of them are the same and one is different, what do you do? Oh, you go, he's so eager to help, you know, <laughs> go to the one, go to the one that appears twice. Good thinking, Richard. <laughs> Maybe you should go. Um, and what is that line that he, that he says to him about, like, you could wait there 25 years or something? No, no, no. He says, you're, I'm 25 years, you're senior. Like as if that's oh, as if that that's the only okay. reason he said you know I'm older than you so you should be the one to right, climb up yeah. on a rock, um, which is kind of hilarious. Again, and Richard doesn't question it at all. Um, but I don't know. It was interesting. Like it didn't to me. The end of Richard Horn did not feel particularly. Um, I don't know, abrupt or something. But I, I think I read maybe it was Emily Stevens in AV Club writing about this idea that you know, like viewers might actually feel quite let down or something by this, this idea of this character who seemed to have been so much a part of all of the kind of evil doing in this new world of the return, um, that there, there would have been more of a, a part for him to play or something grander about his ending. And I, I don't know, that didn't occur to me while watching it. I mean, I certainly didn't feel that way. I wasn't sure, you know, Simon or Miriam, if you felt like there was more that we were, should have gotten from Richard Horn. Well, he was so bad. He had to go. <laughs> he was just doing, but then the other thing is, did he really, it's not, I, someone else pointed this out to me that is he actually dead we 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 don't really know where he is you know he could come back for all we know he could be in some lodge or i don't know there's a chance he could come back he's but i'm glad to have him off of the earth at least temporarily <laughs> one thing that I, I i i find interesting to think about is you know it's i forget who originally said this this idea that um that a story's ending, which I know we're not quite there yet, but we are in the final stretch, um, is its conceit, right? And it's it's around now that we start to find out what the what what the morality of the show is in terms of like are are its bad guys going to get a comeuppance? Are its good guys going to going to win out? And you know we do see a fair number of uh, quote unquote bad guys get their comeuppance this week. I mean, obviously not just Richard. But the uh, the Jennifer Jason Lee and Tim Roth characters, which we can get to later. Um, on the flip side, you know, you have the the Jim Belushi and Robert Nepper characters, who we know yeah. aren't you know great guys, being <laughs> being deemed you know as having hearts of gold mm -hmm. and sort of their their past misgivings, including their you know conspiracy to to very nearly you know kill uh, Dougie slash Cooper. Um, just sort of shunted aside because it it suits the plot. So I I don't know. I I find it interesting to consider how the show treats um, it, it, these payoffs of good and evil. 
Yeah, and we saw that vision of Andy's with um, Evil Coop and um, I guess Dale or Dougie, I, probably Dale, kind of merging as one and like mm-hmm. being the same thing. And I feel like that that's been the major. I mean, what's been so interesting about this season is it's been very clear in its structure and organization. But like the the season one and two were all about having a really clear question who killed Laura Palmer, but yeah. sort of not answering that sort of just evading that question for so long. And that's what was experimental. And this is, um, been very much more clearly organized as a narrative, but we don't even really know what the question is. We don't know the who killed Laura Palmer, except for we know that something has to happen with these two Coopers obviously they have to one has to kill the other or they have to merge or and and we're still getting on that but i feel like as time goes on i feel um less clear of exactly how that will resolve in part because as time goes by they feel like all cooper dougie and evil coop and they all feel like aspects of cooper and i think that that's one of the scariest things about this episode is we're dealing with cooper's rape as evil coop his his two his his sorry to jump ahead but we're dealing with two people who he raped but they're people who were who who cooper was really close with and and really sort of um uh and who he had trust and power over. And so there's something very complicated about that relationship, especially between these two Coopers. Do you have a sense of how it will resolve? Um, uh, oh, wait, I, I kind of wanted to get in and talk about the two Coopers. Uh, but, but Simon, do, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, I don't know if I have any sort of sense of like a, of a prediction for how it will actually play out. But I thought it was, I thought the way you were putting that was all a really great um, introduction of a point that I wanted to bring up. And I thought it was interesting. It didn't really occur to me until I was watching it the second time. Um, I know late, late last night in the middle of the night, having a rewatch of the episode. And when we get to the sequences where Cooper, uh, good Cooper wakes up in the hospital, which are of course, and we should acknowledge this now, um, were, you know, like I have, I've had multiple people sort of text me or tell me about how they jumped off their couches in glee or like they clapped or they were crying like when, when Cooper wakes up and he's himself again. And, and, and we'll get to that in more detail, I think, when we talk about the episode specifically. But one thing that I found really interesting um, rewatching it was now that, that Cooper is awake and he's talking in full sentences and sort of making gestures and, and doing things and emoting, um, it's actually very difficult to watch McLaughlin's performance as Good Coop and not see and hear elements of Bad Coop in it. Like not hear the same inflections and, and the same facial expressions and and line deliveries that verge on on similar. Um, which I'm not saying in, in any kind of sense of it being a weakness in McLaughlin's performance. I don't think that's true at all. I think instead it's a very purposeful sense of what you're talking about, Miriam, which is this idea that these, these binaries that seem on the one hand so clear cut and so there's Good Coop and there's Evil Coop, on the other hand, it's like there's an infection and there's blurring that, that crosses them and the sense of like blurred lines and, and boundaries that should be clear but seem increasingly not to be clear is like going to be one of my themes talking about this episode because I think it's everywhere but um, but yeah anyway yeah well I, I think another good example of that sort of blurred line is you know we, we've talked about Cooper as sort of the exemplar of goodness but there's not there's 
a lot of ambiguity in the way that he deals with Janie E and Sonny Jim, right? Like it's seen, you know, I've seen two different, um, I've seen, I've heard two different things speculated about what his plan is because he does immediately say, do you have the seed hands over the hair? So clearly there's another Cooper being manufactured, but it's not clear if a he's manufacturing the other Cooper for Janie and Sonny Jim, or if he's manufacturing the other Cooper for some for some way to counteract Evil Coop, and then he's gonna go back to Janie, and it's it's like I, I'm not really sure which it is. I think the former is maybe more more plausible. I think so but too. There's, there, yeah, I think so as well. There's I guess, especially because some... he said Dougie will come back to you. He didn't, and then yeah. he says, "No, I will come back to you," and I feel like that theirs was a real goodbye, and hopefully this Dougie will be. A little bit more um, together, <laughs> be better <laughs> manufactured. The kinks will be ironed out, or something. Yeah. But, well, that's sort of another question, right? Like, it's it seems like the tulpas aren't super well adjusted. Like, it's you know between you know between the ones that we've met, it seems like you know just this this being manufactured seems to uh, produce some some issues. So if he is just going to leave them with Dougie, when it's very clear that Janie E is really um has really fallen for not Dougie and and still seems quite besotted with um with Cooper once he's awake like is it really ethical to just to just yeah. return Dougie you know this this incomplete manufactured person anyway these are the things that I think about because I think the limits of Cooper's uh, empathy and goodness are sort of have always been inter- interesting to think well, about Well but so this is I feel like there's so much in this episode we're going to kind of go all over the place because there's just so many good things to talk about like everything somebody brings up I'm like ah there's so much to talk about so for example Simon like this idea the way you're talking about the tulpas is like incomplete or like sort of imperfect people manufactured people um I don't know. Maybe we can loop back around that around to that when we get to the Diane sequence later, but I actually I just wanted to pick up on it because I think I think it's something that this episode is playing with very clearly. This idea of like how how much are we supposed to invest in these people? Are we supposed to treat them the way that we would treat everyone else? And if we're not, then what does that say about us, right? I mean, this idea that like Janie E was married to Dougie for many years, even if he was a tulpa, right? I mean, we look at him and we're like, what was up with that guy? But she was married to him. I mean, you know, she treated him as a real, as a real person. So I, that's a separate question than um, the question of like the moral ambiguity around Coop, um, which I, I think is interesting. I like you pointing that out, Simon, because I think for me, it works interestingly against what I think is maybe a more simple reading of what goes on when Cooper wakes up, which is that Cooper is back in this position of full and total knowledge. He is able to do everything. He is sort of like agency personified. Um, I, I like this idea that like, actually Cooper doesn't really know everything and Cooper isn't maybe fully in charge. Like for example, the idea of him saying to the Mitchum brothers, you guys have hearts of gold. When, when we know that they would have shot and killed him <laughs> four episodes prior or whatever it was. Um, anyway, I, I thought, I thought that was worth pointing out that I think you're right there, Simon. And there is some ambiguity going on around the edges of Cooper's return. Yeah, I think that um, at first, you know, you could think of Cooper as the antithesis of bad Cooper, of Mr. C. But really, it's um, Cooper is a complete combination of the two, of, of the innocence of Dougie, the innocent good and the sort of diabolicalness of evil Coop. Yeah. Like he wouldn't exist without that. And it's... It's, it's very interesting and subtle, but um, I think, uh, can we go back to um, to Cooper's waking up? Because yes. there, one thing that I thought was interesting, I rewatched part three 
um, this week with some friends who were really behind. And I noticed that, that um, in part three, which is so funny because part three, they were asking me all these questions about part three, like, what is this purple space? Who is that? You know, NATO. And, I, and like, cause I'm, cause I'm caught up and I was like, I really don't know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I can't answer any of these questions. Nobody knows yet. And, um, but, uh, I, the Ronette Polanski, the, um, or the, the actress, yeah. we still don't know who that was. She says to him, the first thing she says to him when he's going through this is, is, um, uh, let's see where did it go is when you um when you get there you'll oh she says when you get there you'll already be there mm-hmm. and so oh, I feel like that that works really well with his waking up and sort of having been there for a while and knowing exactly what to do and and all of that and I also just want to say that I mean obviously this was a very this was a very satisfying scene, but it was also very intense. And, you know, maybe like sort of, mm-hmm. we couldn't have handled too much coop throughout the rest of the season. But I really love the other line reading I love is the way he says, Janie, it's okay. <laughs> I feel like her name exists for him to say, Janie. <laughs> I completely love it. And I also want to say that the Mitchum brothers, that bouquet that they bring, all birds of paradise amazing (laughs) um i mclaughlin in that scene like even before you get to the real powerhouse lines right i mean the 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 line that opens the scene is when coop wakes up and um philip gerard says something about you're you're finally awake or you're awake and and coop says a hundred percent and you know of course like your heart already cheers a little bit at that and then at the as sort of to bookend that, once the music has begun uh, halfway through the scene, when he's talking to Bushnell, the Twin Peaks music kicks in, and he walks out the door and he says, "I am the FBI." And you know that is the moment where I again I had the laptop balanced on my knees, and I still I, I knocked it over like trying to clap my hands together in pure glee <laughs> at this moment. It was so wonderful. Um, but like even in the middle of all, I did the exact same thing except without the laptop. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, but even even between those two, like really wonderful, amazing bookends, there's just such wonderful stuff from McLaughlin's performance in the middle. I it just gets me when Janie E and Sunny Jim come back from the bathroom, and you cut to the shot of Coop on the bed, and he pats the bed to get Sunny Jim to sit next to him. I was like, oh my god, and and the way that he looks at Janie E like with such love. I mean, for me, like the performance there you know, tends to sort of override maybe any questions about like actual ambiguity around what goes on in his treatment of them. Um, and much more just that there is such love and such affection there that it is such a, it's a, it's a tender and very intense scene. I think, as you say, Miriam, it's, it's true that it's, it's, it's a lot going on there. And her scene and her performance too. I mean, especially there and in their goodbye, I found that their performance of a sort of middle age marriage so moving she's like dealing with you know debt and disability and they still have this like incredible sort of their sex life is getting better and it's just something that you really rarely see in in entertainment is something so really tender and dynamic the way that she's so protective I will never forget the way she says noon 30 when she's trying to take care of all of his debts and she's like all of that but like this brought it all back to me of how how you know that that's what really a marriage is is to sort of take care of someone through the bad times to be able to get to the good moments and I thought that was all so movingly done yeah I am a little sad that we're 
apparently probably not going to get the Naomi Watts Lordern Dern scene or scenes that I was hoping for. Um, that seems that that makes me a little bit sad. Um, but that is as as good a segue as we're going to get to talk about Diane and Laura Dern's uh, frankly incredible set of scenes in this episode, from her getting the the sort of triggering text all the way to her uh, to her exit. I mean, <laughs> I think th- like her her scene and, and other people have sort of pointed this out. The scene where she uh, recounts what happened with Cooper is right up there with sort of the classic intense Lynchian sequences of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And that we haven't really had too many of those over the course of, of this series, but Laura Dern, she just, she, di- she dials up that intensity and she's right there in, in that register that sort of Lynch is known for. And of course she just kills it completely. I, but yeah. she's also so good in the red room. And she's just so blasé. Yes. And they're just like, and she, they're explain, you know, the one man explains it to her and she says, I know, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> That's gotta be my favorite of a great performance. She was really, but yeah, her disassociation at the moment of the way she dealt with the trigger. I mean, I think it's really, it's, it's a, another rare thing to see someone dealing with, a trigger and with intense trauma and disassociation and splitting. And it was a really beautiful performance. There is so much going on in this scene with Diane. I, I'm going to try to get at some of the things I've been thinking about and we'll see if any of it makes sense. But um, I, I, I think one of the things that's very interesting about that whole sequence is the fact that we are, as an audience, we are led to believe that at, at the end we realize that she's a, a tulpa, that she's this sort of created being. And we're left very much with this question of, so where does the tulpa begin and where does real Diane end? Because if, if this tulpa was just sort of created for a purpose, why have her recount a story that belongs to the real Diane, which is the story of being raped? And of course there's maybe a, a narrative reason in there, which is that like, truly evil Cooper being very evil by using Diane's real memory in order to disarm, um, in order to disarm Cole and these other guys so that, so that she could possibly kill them. So certainly there's a kind of narrative justification for it, but I think it's much more complicated than that. The idea that again, Lynch is sort of putting in your, putting very much in front of us, um, like thematizing this problem of, of how people respond to women's stories of, of violence and whether or not they are taken seriously or they are taken as real, particularly because of problems around things like dissociation and splitting and, and, and women not being able to like perfectly recount exactly everything that happened to them because memory doesn't work that way and, and maybe they've had to fracture off a part of themselves that trauma happened to or maybe they behaved in a way that wasn't perfectly um, you know, explicable in terms of a narrative of having been a victim and, and all of these things. And I think the Diane stuff, again, puts that forward in such a fascinating way in these sequences where Diane is um, and Laura Dern are, are just so moving with the delivery of these stories. How can you not believe her? How can you not be moved by it? And then in the sequence, Lynch, as the director, count, um, cuts so frequently to Lynch as observer in the scene. And the, and his, the look on his face is so fascinating because it is kind of inscrutable. It moves between like skepticism, awareness, possibly wanting to believe her, never quite sure. I, I just think it's so, it's so interesting that Lynch sort of continues to put these sorts of stories forward, especially when it connects back to Laura Palmer and the idea that like Laura Palmer's version of, of the world and what she was seeing was just never really understood or seen by anyone else while she was alive. 
I know that we had very mixed feelings um, back when this whole concept of Cooper um, back then potentially having assaulted Diane and yes, now very yeah. explicitly having having raped Diane. Um, we had some very mixed feelings about that being um, introduced back when it was introduced. And I totally understand anyone who has misgivings about that being made explicit in this episode, considering that, you know, sexual violence against women is like omnipresent in prestige television to the point that it's been like a huge crutch for a lot of shows. But I have to say, if you're going to do it, this Lynch and Dern, um, I think did the work in terms of, uh, in terms of performance and writing to make it, um, to make it credible and, and to, and to make it feel appropriately weighted, which is not always done. Absolutely. I think a friend of mine on Twitter, I think, my friend Brent was saying that a lesser director would have shown a flashback or something. Yes. And instead it was so much her performance and the way she grabbed her neck. And you're so right, Kate. I didn't think about that with Lynch's reaction shot, but I did notice that his, his gaze would go down. He would go from looking at her face to looking at her mm-hmm. body. And it was really interesting. And, um, and as far as also, you know, her being enthralled to her, and sort of like a, a sort of um, almost in a slave-like way to her uh, to her rapist mm-hmm. is such an interesting way to do it because exactly what you said of people not believing survivors because of the way that they sort of are um, are connected still to their rapist. That's such an interesting way to do it and to to show this idea of splitting. But then we go back to what we were saying about Cooper. Is it's not so complicated. It's it's not so simple that they're different people. They're exactly parts of the same person. Um, I the I, I love the way that that both of you guys have sort of put this stuff because I think it clarifies for me what I was the point I was even trying to make in saying Lynch is thematizing this, because what I think I find so fascinating about this scene, particularly with Diane, is is through the strength of Dern's performance, and and this is what you were saying, Simon, and you're absolutely right that they do the work here of of making this work, and a lot of it falls on the writing and Dern's performance, which is so moving. I mean, I I can't really imagine a viewer watching that and not not sort of being moved by it the same way that I feel about the first time that that Dern uh, and Diane recount this story to uh, Cole many, many episodes ago. is like, I, I just can't imagine anyone not being moved by it and not believing her, not feeling like, of course, we want to believe her, while at the same time, Lynch is is very clearly confronting us with this idea that she is not real. And and in a, and in a very interesting way, like that, that points out so many of the problems of empathy or the lack of empathy that exists in these kind of situations around sexual violence is this idea of, well, belief has to follow from, quote, reality or empirical proof or like an, obs- an observable situation of facts. And it's like, actually, belief doesn't have to follow from that. Belief is a, is a form of empathy. It's a form of like generousness towards another human human being. It actually isn't dictated by like facts and truth and reality. And I think that that's what I love so much about this sequence. And I also love the idea that the tulpas here and throughout tend to almost function as like an indicator. They tend to function as like a reference to almost something like moving images, right? I mean, a moving image of a person is like a tulpa of that person. It's it's a, it's another form of splitting, another form of fracturing, another form of copying. And it again brings up the question of like, how real is it, right? I mean, is it, does it matter that we can 
can we can watch um, Fire Walk with Me and feel empathy for Laura Palmer, who is a fictional created person, the way that a tulpa is created. Like, does that empathy matter, or does it matter less because she is fictional? I don't think it does. I think it it matters the same. But I, I think I love the fact that Lynch is sort of bringing this out here so clearly. Very interesting. But can we also talk about the scene in terms of just narrative, how it works? Because yeah, I sure, think it's, sure. been, it's been very discussed that she says that I'm, she goes from sort of the, from being, talking about being above the convenience store by saying she was in an old gas station to all of a sudden sort of looking at the text again. And as we mentioned before, this is also a weird thing that the text is an earlier time when she looks at it than when she first got the text. So I don't know what that means. But when she's triggered, then she says, and I had to listen to it over and over again, but it was more clear to people with um, with who had the closed captioning on that she says, I'm in the sheriff's station. I'm in the sheriff's station. I don't, the third time it sounds to me like she says, I gave him the coordinates by the sheriff's station, even though we see it say, I'm in the sheriff's station again. So everyone has made the conclusion that NATO is the real Diane. But how does that work? Do, I mean, does she, what does the real Diane look like? Does she look like, what does the real Diane behave like? Like, how do these people recognize her? I'm very confused by what, who she is when she's not a tulpa. <laughs> My favorite theory is that actually Naomi Watts is the real Diane, which doesn't make any sense <laughs> if you start to think about it, but it is where everyone's minds went, I think subliminally because of Mulholland Drive, frankly. Um, but anyway, the, I mean, those are all, those are all fine questions. My, my question about that scene narratively, and we, we can maybe also fold this in, is the way that, the way that as she begins to go for the gun, it seems like there's a fight for identity there. Yes. Like it, it almost seems like the real Diane's spirit or essence or soul or whatever, or personality is trying to assume control and stop her from doing the bad thing. Yes. Um, and that's also when she starts saying, you know, I'm here, I'm here, you know, or, or whatever it is that she's saying. We, now I'm not so sure, <laughs> but um, you know, it seems like there, there's a fight for control in that moment, which is something we haven't yet seen out of um out of a telpa situation so it's all very it's all very tangled she says i am not me which is something i think that audrey says too so we can transition to that I and mean, audrey says in a different i think episode but one other thing that i want to say that is if if diane is actually nato if nato in the sheriff's department in jail is diane then it's really terrible. There was an IndieWire article early on that was talking about um, Diane's appropriation of like Asian, um, mm. Asian, like sort of, you know, her shirts and all of this kind yeah. of thing. And even talked about her hair, which made no sense. And I was so irate. And if that article was actually right, and Diane is actually Asian, I will be so embarrassed for us all. <laughs> I don't know if I would go that far as to think as to think that there's a possibility that the way Diane the way that Diane will exist physically will not be in the same form of Laura Dern because I mean I think just for the sheer fact that I'm fairly sure Gordon Cole and Albert have known her for that long so they must know what she looks like um, I mean I, I do think that, that there might be a scenario in which a sort of very differently personified um, but physically the same Laura Dern will perhaps emerge out of this character of NATO I'm not entirely sure that will be true either I mean I think um, 
her saying I'm in the sheriff station could could lead to any number of scenarios. It might not necessarily mean that she is uh, NATO. Um, but I, I do one thing I did want to point out as well here that I think um, the way we're talking about Diane gets us at very clearly is an idea that I think came to me again on the rewatch of this episode, which is um, that so much of what is going on in the return. It's very, it's fascinating to me, like just how how much we're reminded of the unreliability of faces and bodies to like tell us anything about the actual sort of truth of the person involved in, you know, the quote the person within that face and body. Um, this idea that like faces and bodies are not actually reliable indicators of the kind of person that we're expecting to get inside them. You know, whether that person has remained the same over time, whether the person is doubled, whether the person has changed, and and I just thought that was a really fascinating link to like the overall general state of the show being so concerned with like the passage of time and how things change and how or they stay the same and how sort of impossible it is to tell sometimes um what's going on uh but anyway I, I just thought that was interesting in relation to diane yeah and then um should we go ahead and talk about audrey or I, or should uh, we, talk, we can or is there more that we need to talk about is there something between diane and audrey well, there is. I mean, I don't want to end with it, so we should probably now talk about um, sort of... The, it's kind of funny to think of it as the breather of the episode, considering how violent it is. Yeah. But the, uh, the the showdown yes. outside the um, outside Janie E's and, and Dougie's residence, which dispatches the uh, Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Lee characters. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't really know what to make of that sequence, except... To think of it as comic relief and also because of the actors present and the way that it stays just how like over the top violent it is i couldn't help but think of it as a kind of tarantino parody oh, totally especially with but roth with, and jennifer jason lee who are in the yeah, exactly. yeah. and it but it's so much better i think i heard someone say is it like a parody or is it sort of a you know is it a um is it i'm gonna i, I don't know it, it's it's better than tarantino though i think for my mind and it has that great line which sort of sums up so much of why I feel like Twin Peaks is really resonating now um, where the Mitchum brothers say, God, the suburbs, what's going on? And, you know, he says, people are under a lot of stress, Bradley. I think that it, it, that's such a great line. Yeah, I don't know what to say, except that it's perfect, the scene. And Jennifer Jason Lee, she's been having these... Um, sort of great performances and the, the hateful eight, it was okay and she's great in good time but just what she's able to do in this role yeah. is so exciting her her delivery of the line it's the last bag of chips I, was, I mean it's, it's a truly amazing line reading it's like one of the top line readings in the whole show and she's talking about a bag of chips but i i just thought she killed all of that um the whole scene i thought she was fantastic in it um i again like you said i think i kind of have a hard time exactly figuring out how to how to place these sequences in relation to the whole overall episode i mean certainly in in the kind of return as a whole it's it makes total sense to just say it's a completely pleasurable like sequence in and of itself it doesn't need to have a connection to everything else but um i, I don't know i mean one of the things that i was thinking about again here is that it, because it is in the early part of the episode there is something to this idea that uh lynch and frost here are again like dramatizing the idea that even in the world of the show it's it's become excessive how many people are looking for Dougie and how many people are trying to find Coop and figure out what is going on and they're they're wanting him to show up and you know this sort of again like overt uh 
display of spectatorship. Uh, like there's all these characters looking and watching and waiting and, and all of them sort of trying to make sense of what is happening. Um, and they're often wrong and they often don't have enough information to make sense of what's happening. I mean, again, I find that a kind of like very enjoyable nod to what's going on for us as spectators. Um, and it's something similar is happening in the early scene with uh, Jerry and the binoculars, right? The way he's sort of trying to, to see this and he, and he, it's wrong and it's like confused seeing. Um, and so, I mean, there's some of that. And then again, there's just like sheer complete slapstick comedy here. We have again, the like Abbott and Costello pairing of the FBI agent and his little, his little partner who's so downtrodden. The thing is, that sequence, it's like the real FBI. Mm. It's not like the cartoon FBI we've had in the rest of the show where they're like, where there's daring do and investigation and they're actually like helping people. No, th like this is the first time we've ever had the real FBI on Twin Peaks. <laughs> the real FBI really would sit by and do nothing <laughs> and just like wait for wait for the bullets to stop flying before they like head out me meekly onto the street. Like it's so funny to me that. It's finally here in the sequence that we get something approaching like the FBI we know in Dublin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Especially when you're right with the cart the return of cartoonish I am the FBI perfect. Yeah, know? exactly. Yes. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's very true. Hey, like this sort of really negative image of the FBI put up right before we get uh, Coop's I am the FBI. And it's it's so sort of gratifying when we watch it. Absolutely. That's very true. Yeah, he's finally going to link up with, with the FBI 26 years later and be like, oh, all right, <laughs> this is what y'all are now. Cool. <laughs> oh, um, the, you know, the only other thing I wanted to bring up, just because I am I am sort of mystified by it, uh, and then, then maybe we can return to the latter part of the episode. In, in the middle of all of these scenes of the sequences in front of the house, uh, when we get some early sequences in the hospital, there is this, like, sort of strange interlude where... Um, you know, after the Mitchell, brother, Mitchell brothers have shown up and brought the uh, the bundle of flowers, we, we um, John, Jim Belushi says, I think something like, "It was what electricity uh, about what happened to, to Coop." It cuts, and then we get this sort of s small scene with Cole standing in the middle of his office, staring at all of the machines that surround him looking, I don't know, befuddled, like unnerved, um, fascinated by all of these sort of electronic machines. And then at the end, it cuts back to Dougie, uh, to Coop's um, heart monitor thing. Well, I just think that this whole scene gets to the sort of core, I mean, this whole, uh, uh, this episode, but especially when they say, so does coma have to do with electricity? And, and we're getting into, um, you know, I think that this is the, if there's a key explanation, it's sort of that, this connection. Actually, so one thing that I wanted to, I mean, everyone we're talking about is coma. We're talking about the um, Richard Horn, who was the product of a, of a, of a, a coma rape. And then we're talking about Dougie waking from his coma. And then later we'll talk about Audrey, who you don't know exactly her relationship with her coma. But there's something that... Um, um, people have brought up the the deep divers into Twin Peaks have brought up the um, the uh, the mauve zone, uh, which is uh, sort of a, a post like an Alistair Crowley kind of guy, um, Kenneth Grant, and he wrote these books about the mauve zone, and they're talking about the purple zone that that Cooper goes to, and then we see a lot of purple later on, and that it, it was this sort of you know occultist thing. One of the things that has been written about it is that you can access it, especially in certain sleeps, especially comas, especially in coma sleeps. And um, 
And so I think that there's some, if there's any explanation, it has to do with comas, but especially electricity. But the coal scene too, I keep having the feeling that Cole knows more than than we than he's letting on. I have this feeling that he's sort of he he you know these inscrutable reactions that sort of he and you know and we also have that scene of him saying hello Diane when she's outside that. I think Cole yeah. knows much more than 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 he gives the impression of. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that certainly plays into this idea of, of Cole as being something of like a reflector or a representative of Lynch as the as the figure of a director, right? Like the idea of him, you know, he's not the director of the FBI or anything, but he's he's the director of like this team of people. Um, and, and, and this idea that he seems to know more and he's withholding it from us is, you know, again, sort of an interesting comment about what the fans' relationship is with Lynch. This idea that people very much insist on this idea that Lynch must have some answer about like the narrative or the universe. And, and he is always very resistant to that while still very much performing the idea that he could answer if he wanted to, just to sort of give, keep you constantly in that space of, of feeling like there is an answer and you're never going to find out what it is. Um, I, which I, which I, I love by personally, I find it wonderful. Um, as always Lynch gets off on being withholding. Just like <laughs> yeah, I always say. For sure. Um, so we should we've already teased it enough so we should probably talk about um the end of the episode which is of course the audrey sequence and first of all a couple things i just have to say i know that people as i mentioned last week have been dreading and dreading and dreading the uh the eddie vetter appearance um as i've already said i that that did not afflict me because i actually like him uh for what it's worth i think the song that he played this week was perfectly apropos um lyrically with with everything that's going on almost to an on the nose degree um i thought that aspect was fine but my my favorite thing about the setup of, of that roadhouse sequence is when she and charlie show up to the roadhouse to my mind it was a very oh so they so there's nothing like you know sort of there's nothing weird going on the, they really did get to the roadhouse and it really is supposed to be in reality and they really weren't in some sort of exterminating angel no no exit type deal um and you know it's a very canny fake out um and i mean why it is that eddie vetter specifically is the one to or, or however it is he's named under his real name in this episode um why it is that it's him who appears in in, in her coma i'm not really sure although well, that's so funny actually given, because he's so 90s and that's true I was, actually it's right that's like a 90s came dream. out in that, 1991 yeah uh, i mean and yeah, the, so it's perfect and timing. the other nine inch nails i mean a friend and i before this episode were joking like is this um lynch's idea of 90s nostalgia you know like <laughs> and it obviously is because it's audrey's it's like it yeah. it's she's never left the 90s yeah in a way. I mean, she has too because she's awake, but I think that that's actually kind of brilliant. Otherwise, why have Eddie Vedder, especially in this alternate name? Yeah. So then, of course, we have the, the crowd sort of clearing away and the, um, the, uh, the second time in the episode that we get a classic Twin Peaks music cue, in this case, Audrey's Dance, and she reenacts like one of the most famous sequences from the from the original series and um i like the way someone else put it i think i think it was on a message board put it that like in isolation i think they were worried about this scene because it almost seemed like if someone was going to write like twin peaks fan fiction for what the new season would be like exactly it almost seems like it would have been that until of course the spell is broken by what happens in those 
very scary last few seconds. Yeah, so much going on here. Yeah, maybe before we get to the white room stuff, because I do have a lot to say about that too, and I think there's we we should definitely dig into that. But um, but yeah, I just wanted to give a few minutes to like the dance itself because I think it is such a key part of this of this episode, and I I think there's a lot to parse there. I mean, I think when the the stage announcer guy says after Vetter finishes says, and now ladies and gentlemen, Audrey's dance. I mean, I almost had a moment, I swear I had a moment where like, I felt like my, my not my vision was blurring, but like like my head was swimming or something. Like th- this effect that Lynch gets through the, the odd hushing of the sound and the crowd very directedly moving off the stage and uh, off the, to the sides. Um, I, I found it so unmooring and so uncanny and so strange that, that it was somehow even, <laughs> when, when Audrey arrives on the dance floor and starts dancing, um, I don't know, I'm still trying to put my finger on exactly what I think is going on there. And I think part of what is so strange about the whole scene is that this is maybe the first time in The Return where, you know, Lynch and, and Frost and the show are referencing the old show not as like a, a diegetic universe, right? I mean, not in the sense of like, oh, these characters have existed before and of course they do things and, and all of this stuff. So it's not referencing it as a diegetic universe. It's referencing it as an image, as an icon, as a television show effectively, um, which is a very different register. I mean, certainly we've had, you know, nods to like, oh, the pie and the coffee and everything. And, but none of that is quite on the same level as what's going on here where we like at a whip pace, like a, you know, rapid fire pace move into this extreme self-reflexivity of the show, which, you know, has always been there a little bit, but never in quite this like extreme of a move in one space. And it, and it really threw me. And I, I've, I've read fans reactions like on Twitter to this, where they were sort of saying they were cheering when they heard Audrey's dance announced. I found it like terrifying. I was, I was already like something bad is happening here when the dance starts. And, and then of course we get to the, um, the white room, um, and and maybe I'll come back to my second point about the dance because I want to hear what people have to say about the about this white room. Um, I have to admit I was a little disappointed um, when we cut to the white room, and um, I think I, we can dig into like why I think my mind has changed a little bit about it. But you know, people who have listened to this podcast maybe remember that I think I have said on the record a couple of times that I really would never expect Lynch. To, to, to make a move like that, where um, the idea that there, that these the dream logic of this universe could be kind of co- um, contained within a very clear psychology belonging to one character who is, quote, dreaming, and that that sort of then allows uh, someone watching the show to kind of neutralize all of the oddity and uncanniness that has come before because it was, quote, this one person dreaming or this one person in a coma. And it's it's just so uncharacteristic of Lynch. Um, I've since changed my mind, and we can get into why, but I, but I want to I hear... <laughs> I want to hear like what um, what you were going to say about it, Miriam. Well, Kate, I have the same reaction of changing my mind and the initial disappointment. But as far as you're saying about the white room, I think that the 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 juxtaposition between the way she looks in that dance and the way she looks in the white room is part in the the callback that you're saying to this um, to this image from the past. I think that we don't realize how much the entire Audrey scenes have been quoting the past until we see her in the white room with the straighter hair longer because the entire time her role she's like playing herself but as an older person and there's something so strange and awkward and it's you know giving us what we want but in this kind of obscene way it's like Lola Montez kind of territory you know of like and of that kind of um 
And I think that we didn't realize, you know, the way she's dressed, the way her hair styled, she's playing Audrey as an older person, even the way he's paired her with someone smaller than her. And she's a very small person. And I think by the time we see the real Audrey with like Cooper, she'll seem not so, you know, I think that there's, there's a, there's a bit of a, you know, a, an overemphasis of how she's older. She's not Audrey because she's trying to fit in literally the same Audrey clothes for so much of that. Yeah. And it comes to a high point there. But as far as changing my mind too, I think I had the same disappointment because I was like, I'm, but I actually did expect the all a dream, but I didn't want it for Audrey. People kept mm. saying that they kept saying like, is she dreaming? And I'm like, no, she, She's not dreaming. It's a strange. She's, you know, she's. It's Benuel. She's trapped in that. Yeah. I, I thought it was something else. But what's interesting, actually, about Audrey is, as I was talking about with, um, again, the same friend Brent, like, where does the dream end? Because I yes, was really exactly. interested in the the strange time things. You know, the lack of a, the lack of a shadow, the weird repetitions. And I was really hoping that this was part of the strange dream logic of the of the narrative and that there was something really interesting going on with time. But if it's, as you say, locked in one person's point of view, so what do we know that she's dreaming? She's dreaming about Billy. She's dreaming about the roadhouse. She's obviously dreaming about Charlie, her and Charlie scenes. And I think that um, uh, this same Fred Brent was also saying it's maybe not dreaming because she's not just dreaming of the night. 90s and she's not waking up in bed that it's like some kind of psychological role play or something mm -hmm. that maybe Charlie is her psychiatrist and she's obviously kind of trapped in the past she's dealing with trauma and this sort of thing um and she's the 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 there's elements of the of the um it's not just the 90s there's elements of modern bands Twin Peaks now and one of the things that I found so interesting is that there's so much it's like she's connected to Richard and mm -hmm. Sparkle and all of that you know that the whole Sparkle trade and I think it's interesting that she wakes up when he disappears mm -hmm. I think that there's yeah. something really directly connected with that but I, I think that she I think part where the limits of her world her dream world are Billy and I went back and I watched the end of almost all of the episodes, like just the last five minutes in the credits scenes. I think all of those are Audrey. I think that the whole time we've been saying, where's Audrey? Where's Audrey? All of those roadhouse scenes at the end have been Audrey's dream. We've been yeah. missing her, but she's we've been she's been there. I would say. Maybe not the James scene. Maybe the James scene is actually real. <laughs> but all of the other big bands and the, the repeating, because all of the strange yeah. thing with time and the there's an, an ending scene where we say, um, has anyone seen Billy at the diner? And yeah. then there's like two different audience, two different people. Um, it's a very strange scene. So all of this weird uncanny stuff, I think, is Audrey. And it's all been in the same place in the narrative, which is fascinating, all within like the last five, ten minutes. I'm just okay. imagining the the people the, the people that we mentioned last week who have been making the uh, the timeline charts yeah. are just let like, this at this week they're just like pulling their hair. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I bet. Yeah. It might explain it more clearly though, but in a disappointing way, I wanted it to be about narrative and not about dreaming. But here, here we go again. It's full circle, and it's about the whole 
show in a way or what's been most interesting to me in the show is about Audrey dealing with her trauma of rape and her trauma of rape in a similar way of Laura Palmer in that it was Laura Palmer's father and this was um, Audrey's sort of an all of our father figure, Dale Cooper, and it was Bob. And I think that it that that Audrey is the sort of obviously Laura of this season, and we just hadn't realized. Oh man, there's a lot in, in these things you guys are saying. I'm, so I'm going to try to parse what I my various responses. Um, so I think the first thing that I would say is I think um, for me what what changed my mind. It's interesting because I think Miriam, you're having a different reaction to it than I am. So for me, what what changed my mind about um, my disappointment over this reveal of of Audrey sort of perhaps being in this psychological space, whether it's dreaming or a psychological break or something. Um, what changed my mind about that? Um, was, again, the fact that as soon as I started thinking about the roadhouse and all of the different things that are connected to Audrey and all of the things that, that seem to be in her dream, it, it becomes almost, it, it certainly becomes impossible for there to be any clear line between where her dreaming uh, ends and the rest of the show begins. And I think, like, even as you saying, you're like, well, it's the roadhouse scenes, but you'd have to excise James from that. And I mean, I think it's almost more interesting if you think about it as, as what, what, what does it mean that we really can't, like that we would have to just sort of separate James. It's like, it is all linked. I mean, there, there isn't a clear line where you could say, well, Audrey is dreaming about this, but not about that. Like she, she see her dreams very much involve things that are of the, um, the current life of the town, right? I mean, she, the dream spaces can, are, are include those things. Um, at the same time as, as possibly she's dreaming about things that seem to be irrelevant or intangible to the rest of the show, which may or may not be these characters who are living in the roadhouse that, that may or may not be tangentially related to her son. And, um, so for me, what I like about that revelation is you're sort of realizing that this is again, not just Lynch working with dream logic, but Lynch making the statement that the dream logic is never so easily separable from quote, like epistemological or regular logic that they're, they're always sort of kind of overmapped over each other. There's an indistinguishability between them, um, which is just sort of part of this experience of life that we all have, or we don't always know exactly what is going on. Um, and I, that I thought for me very much redeemed this idea of it, of there being a simple scenario in which Audrey is quote dreaming. Um, that's, that's the first thing that I really liked about this. The second thing that I really love about the Audrey scenario and that I think plays into very much to what's going on with Diane as well, um, and I think this is going to be, be me pushing against what fans of the show are maybe expecting us to talk about in this episode of The Lodgers, which is for us to be very like thrilled and, and happy that Cooper has returned. And it's funny, we haven't actually talked about it that much. Um, so what I think is really interesting with the Audrey stuff is that I actually think to a large extent it, it works against the idea of there being the possibility of a return. You know, if, if Cooper's narrative here is like a successful return, the idea that we finally had someone come back to the world and, and things are going the way they're supposed to and he has this sort of direct connection to reality now and he's returned, the women in this episode do not have that experience. Laura, or Diane and Audrey have, you know, at best, like a tenuous relationship to reality, a relationship where they are struggling to return. Like they seem to be desperately wanting to, to have their own identities and their own connection to the world. And it's not being given to them. And I, I think it's really fascinating that the, the way that, um, this plays out in the Audrey scene has so much to do again with um, an attempted return to the iconography of the show in the past, right? I mean, if Cooper's return has been kind of charted around his following these clues around like pie and coffee and these things that were seemingly bringing him ever closer to reality, um, 
with Audrey, it's the opposite. In the Audrey scene, we have Audrey and the show trying to like crawl back into its own skin, its old skin, in, in terms of putting on this performance again, of having Audrey do the exact same dance that she did 27 years ago. And all it does is highlight how impossible it is for her to return to that space. And, and it's terrifying. I mean, I found, I found this ending terrifying and not in the sense of like oh we don't know where audrey is just terrifying in a more general effective sense of like you know this is not about nostalgia this is this is about the failure of of getting to this good world of, of having a place in the world and this is what i love about lynch it's never so simple like we just we don't get a straightforward narrative here he's undercutting it at the same time i mean do we hope a romantic reunion between audrey and cooper because it's very complicated by the fact that even though he was the bad Cooper, he was Cooper. It's Cooper yeah. who raped her. And so I think that that is so complicated. And um, I uh, one thing that I'd like to say, too, is that um, I I expected the someone to be Olive Dream because the one um, film that's been referenced so much before in Wild at Heart and in season three is um, Wizard of Oz. And that yeah. ends with, uh, it was an all a dream, but it's not a disappointing, it was all a dream because yeah. it was, it's it's obviously clear that that was reality. And that's what I've been asking the whole time. I know that we're dealing with Wizard of Oz thing, but which was Oz and which is Kansas? And mm -hmm. I think that it's been very clear that Twin Peaks is both Oz and Kansas and the Audrey um, the Audrey narrative gives it part of that she's the, the Dorothy she's been dreaming but as you're saying that we'll never know what quite is yeah. everything overlaps we'll never know what is dream and what is not so I think this is an interesting merging also of Mark Frost and David Lynch of how that they, you know, their different sensibilities as writers and as as artists. I think we get that a really interesting resolution with that. Absolutely. I uh, I have two sort of general questions to, to throw out there before we wrap up. Um, the, the first of which, I don't know if you'll have anything to, to say about this concretely, but it has been kicking around in my in my mind. I've been thinking about the discrepancy between the evil coop that we saw at the very end of um, original flavor Twin Peaks and the evil coop that we know now, 25 years later, because they don't seem like the same person. really. No. Like, you know, the, the guy we saw back then had that evil kind of Bruce Campbell grin. And, you know, clearly the, you know, the, the evil Cooper that we know now, it's very difficult to imagine him, um, you know, doing things out of sort of like like pleasurable malice um you know sexually assaulting people and things like that he just doesn't seem that engaged with the people around him he seems to be much more single-minded um in terms of whatever exactly it is his purpose is which is another sort of interesting question like what what has evil cooper's goal been, been this entire time other than survival or is survival it anyway i'm just curious about how we feel about the the evolution of evil cooper and if, if we think that's a deliberate discrepancy or just uh, something they decided to do just for kids. Sorry, hold on. I just have to cough. Sorry, hold on. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, it's so dry in this town. Oh, um, <clears throat> sorry, go ahead, Miriam. <laughs> well, he's gone from the white eyes or gray eyes to the black dead eyes. And as we were saying before, it's almost the, the emotionlessness of his performance has been 
really scary and the sort of like you know we can't imagine this cooper laughing with glee at something he's just completely and it's it's much scarier i think in a way um is he connected to that other one i don't i i don't know i don't know what his goal is do you have thoughts kate I, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that, that I've, because I saw somebody talk about that on Twitter as well or something, this question of like, how does the Cooper from the season two finale connect, Evil Cooper connect to the um, the current Evil Cooper? And and all I could think about in that is that the Evil Cooper that we get at the end of season two, who is very much of a spirit with like Bob, right? I mean, the sense of the doppelgangers just seem to be like pure id, like just are, are just sort of pure destructive malevolent force, like t- destruction embodied and personified. Um, and it actually occurs to me as well, it, it's interesting in the return that like the doppelganger as a concept isn't really present. I mean, you know, yes, Evil Coop is still Cooper's doppelganger, but they seem to have sort of drifted away from that and are much more fascinated with the idea of a tulpa, which is a very different way of thinking about a copy. Um, anyway, so the the doppelganger there is is almost more of a piece with Richard Horn. I mean, Richard Horn really stands in for like that mode of, of evil, someone who is just massive destruction. And so much so that you think, how could he have even lived in the world this long? Like when, when we watch this string of violence that Richard Horn performs and, you know, some of it seems purposeful, but a lot of it is just like his presence in the world just seems to cause murder and death and torture and brutality. And, and you're sort of like, how did he, how has he been around this long? How has it not imploded? How has it not destroyed everything? Um, that's sort of how I felt about the doppelganger as well. And so it's very interesting to think about Evil Coop in relation to that as like its father or something in the sense that then evil here gets included in the narrative of aging. Like the, the evil Coop becomes like the aged version of the doppelganger. The the e- evil that has sort of lost its like, its its pure energy and drive and has become more about survival and, and getting through and like an economy of energy, right? I mean, the new Coop is very much about an economy of energy, like that he is, he's very controlled and he's very contained and he doesn't do anything he doesn't have to. I mean, there's something, there's like a comment about age in there, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that evil gets the same narrative of aging as everything else in in Lynch's universe. That's so funny. (laughs) Um, I totally agree. The, um, the other question I wanted to throw out there, and this is kind of a broad one is what are you most curious to see? Because you know, unless the, the last episode is secretly six hours long, which guessing it's not, and we've only got two hours left. What are you most curious to see if they'll make time for or not? Uh, for me, I mean, we, it hasn't been touched on for a while, but I'm most curious to see if they're going to seriously fold Laura Palmer back yeah. in me um, too. in a really prominent way because she's she's been referenced a lot. I mean, obviously, we had that scene a few episodes ago with um, Cole seeing her right before uh, Albert um, shows up at the door, which really seemed to portend bad things for him. And of course, we had Laura is the one and her appearance in part eight. And but but she hasn't really been referenced a lot in a few episodes, and I'm I'm wondering if they're going to bring that back full circle for the end, uh, or whether we're going to be left wondering what her centrality was here. Uh, Miriam, what are, what are you wondering about? The same. I'm wondering if Laura is the one, and how she'll come back, and if this is Wizard of Oz, what will she play Glinda again, or is it something else? I'm also, and maybe it's related since they were within this narrative, born at the same time. Um, interested in that frog roach and if that's mm-hmm. going to come back at all because we still haven't had that explained in any way. I mean, not that any everything needs to be explained, but I, I, um, my friend Emily was suggesting that that 
perhaps that woman is Cooper's mother or, and Mm -hmm. someone else suggested the wild, wild theory that somehow Laura is Cooper's mother. I don't even understand how it works anymore. I have to get out my my, my strings and map or something. But um, so but yeah, I feel like that the series can't resolve without Laura. And I'm wondering, of course, who Cooper will end up with. I feel like he'll end up with someone romantically, but it's all a bit it's all a bit awful who he'll end yeah. up with. I mean, maybe will Diane come back? Uh, I don't know. I just I. What about you, Kate? I, yeah, man, I have so many answers to this question, and I'm not sure any of them are, are going to go anywhere. But I, I do think that this question of like Cooper and his sort of the idea that he might end up in a, like a romantic pairing as the sort of traditional narrative drive would have him do so is, is an interesting question. I mean, my guess, I guess if we're doing predictions, I guess it's the last week, we might as well throw some predictions in, um, second to last week. I, I, I think maybe it's more likely that there will be something like a, um, a platonic, but very caring relationship that we'll see him, him reemerge into, whether that's Diane or whether that's Audrey. I mean, for me, a reunion with Audrey would be a, a reunion that, that acknowledges again, that like there are forms of love that are not necessarily sexual or romantic. And I think that the show always did a fairly good job of keeping Audrey and Coop in an interesting space there. And I think, that would be interesting. Um, I personally, I don't really want there to be a romantic connection between Audrey and Coop, but I know I am not of the majority of fans that that do want that. So apologies if anybody <laughs> hates me for saying that. Um, I, the things that I want to see more of, I, I'm I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen with the Becky plotline. I think that the previous week did a really interesting job of like you know teasing that and dangling that. So I'm fascinated to see what happens with Becky. I'm I'm more. I think I'm very interested just to see what what is going to happen with Cooper's like reintegration back into this town. I mean, it, it's so interesting that like he wakes up here and this thing that we all thought was maybe going to be like the majority of the show, which is Cooper engaging with this town, that we we might be lucky if we get like a few scenes of that, right? Of, of Cooper sort of engaging with the sheriffs and with Andy and with Bobby and, you know, these people. Like I, I'm not sure we're going to get enough of it, which of course is perfect because, you know, Lynch always leaves us wanting more, which is what makes it so great. But that I want to see. I'm, I'm fascinated to see if we get more about Grace Sabrisky and what's been going on with Grace Brisky in the past few episodes. Um, I don't know. All of that. All of that and more. I'm going to be thrilled no matter what Lynch gives us, I'm sure. Right. What's under Grace Zabriskie's face? We still don't know. <laughs> but I just realized when you, say, when you said about Cooper going to Twin Peaks, Candy is going to Twin Peaks. And I couldn't uh-huh. be more tickled. I cannot wait to see Candy interact with Twin Peaks. Maybe she'll find her place. And and uh, my my favorite my favorite theory is still that Candy is Laura. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think Candy is gonna fit in very well in Twin Peaks. I mean, her and um Andy and Lucy could have like the most ridiculous conversation that's ever happened <laughs> if you put the three of them together. <laughs> Will Wally Brand I actually think Candy Oh yeah, I was Wally gonna say Brand- Candy and Wally oh. might be a good pairing, eh? Yes. <laughs> Wally come back. <laughs> I know. She's like the daughter they never had. It would be amazing to see that happen. <laughs> um, but I think I'm also just curiously, I'm mo- most curious in tone. We had this turn back to like a really satisfying narrative. You know, it was, it was um, more traditional. But will we go back to any kind of throwback? What will the tone be like? Will it be like eight at all? Will it be... Um, Will it be, I, I have no idea what to expect and I hope it's like nothing we ha- we've seen yet. I, yeah. I, that would mm-hmm. be the best, the best um, outcome. Yeah, there actually aren't going to be any returning characters in the final two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh. Anyway, uh, we should be wrapping up, but uh, I wanted to thank you, Miriam, for uh, for joining us. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to go harass you? Oh, I am there at Mimbale, M-I-M-B-A-L-E, and I'm happy to talk about Twin Peaks any time of day or night. Um, <laughs> and thank you both for having me. This was a real pleasure. Oh, so I'm so glad. I mean, honestly, I like. I feel like we say this pretty regularly, but I um. I just think that that if nothing else, Twin Peaks has really done a remarkable job of of creating such a wonderful space for like meeting people and talking to people that we would never get to meet otherwise. And it's one of my favorite things about the podcast that we have gotten to meet people who I just never would have had an excuse to have a conversation with. And we're so thrilled that you were able to join us for this. Um, and so thrilled that I could find time during this film festival, which is taking up my whole life. But um, I, before I sign off, uh, and Simon does my, my Twitter handle and stuff, I did just want to give a quick wave to some of my Telluride people here who have been listening very diligently to The Lodgers and watching Twin Peaks. And I wanted to give you guys a, a hello. So hello to Leighton and Gina, who have been wonderful fans of The Lodgers. Um, and that's all I will say, other than just thanking Miriam again. Oh, thank you, I Paul. think you meant hello. <laughs> hello. Exactly. Anyway, uh, you can find Kate on Twitter at Cinement, that's C-I-N-E-M-E-N-T. You can find me at Hollowmind, spelled like it sounds, although as I have worn sometimes in the past, um, I mostly just do commie shit, so, you know, just be ready for that. Um, and apparently, I've been told by uh, by Sorted Cinema boss uh, Ricky D that he'll be reposting our old Sorted Cinema episodes where we talked about Lynch, that's me and Kate and some other folks, uh, we talked about some some key stuff, including Inland Empire and Mulholland Drive. Um, so do keep an eye out for that over at SortedCinema.com. It'll also be on the Sorted Cinema podcast. Simon, can I say one more thing quickly? Um, my my oh, yeah. much delayed uh, part eight Twin Peaks Cinemascope piece is is finally coming out soon. Um, so again, my editor was very busy for a while, and we, then we decided we were going to time it with the Metrograph thing, which I think we still missed. I think the Metrograph um, programming series about part eight is actually is ending on the third, I think. But the um, my Twin Peaks part eight piece will be coming out at Cinemascope Online uh, probably around September 8th when the new Cinemascope issue I think is coming out um, so people can keep an eye out for that I'm, I'm a little like I feel bad looking back at it now because I wrote it such a long time ago and it really doesn't reflect where the show has gone since but that is okay so um, just keep an eye out for that if anybody wants to read some stuff about part 8 fantastic I can't wait and, uh, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and you know what And I, I'm, I've been I've enjoyed doing this podcast so very much but I, I will say that I'm sort of glad that it's wrapping up and we can all have our lives again <laughs> <laughs> Don't take it the wrong way, everyone. <laughs> this is very time-consuming. Anyway, <laughs> thank you, Miriam, for joining us. We will be back for a very special blowout finale extravaganza with a special guest. It's going to be great. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back in roughly a week's time. Do you believe in reincarnation? Because I thought I saw your son. Flashing and dancing on the horizon Shades of jade and emerald Oh, I'm a bad girl Cause I turn the bad world into a crystal
believe.